Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the newspaper. <laughs> On July 7th, 2019, the hot, a really hot, humid July 4th weekend, wouldn't you say, Dan? It's air conditioned here. I mean, it's very pleasant. I'm, I'm fine. But yeah, outside it's been hot and humid. It's been uh, a little oppressive it's July, in New Jersey. July 4th, it's supposed to be hot. It, it doesn't All right. throw me. All right. Um, so, by the way, we have to uh, we have a, a fun announcement. Uh, there's a new baby in the Granger clan, and on July fourth. Yeah, that's something. Uh, Brian and Jen Granger mm-hmm. uh, down in uh, Charleston welcomed new baby Oscar Granger, mm-hmm. and uh, so welcome Oscar. Uh, this is very exciting. Another listener. This is yeah. uh, Vivian Granger's first great-grandchild. Oh, how do you like that? Isn't that exciting? My mother's first great-grandchild. I hadn't thought about it that and way. And no. Oscar, what a great name. It is a good and name. Whether you're thinking about hot dogs or um, great a, musicals, that's Oscar Hammerstein or Oscar Levant, uh, one of my favorites. Uh, he was kind of a nut. But all right. Well, moving right along. Um, we wish uh, the new family some very good times. Yes. Well, you know, July 4th every year. Birthday. Way to go. Right. Uh, <laughs> all right. So here we go. Uh, jam-packed weekend. Uh, sort of. We, we went to the movies last night. We saw yes. Late Night. Finally, we saw Late Night. Yes, it's been out for a few we, weeks. I thought we'd be the only people in the theater. But we weren't. It was very crowded. It was jammed. It was air-conditioned. It was very yes. pleasant. yes. It, w- it was all people of our demographic. Yes. And uh, as I said to you, I think growing up with not a huge amount of air conditioning, mm-hmm. um, that was a normal thing to do in the summer, was to go to the movies. Because then you would definitely be in air conditioning. Well, the great thing about it, too, was... two hours or whatever. We went to dinner afterwards, uh, and it was pouring rain, and the restaurant was literally across the street from the movie theater. So that's the way to do it. I'm heavily embedded in this nostalgia aspect. Oh, really? Uh, And uh, you just (laughs) zoomed right back to uh, present day. But uh, anyway, what did you think of the movie? I liked it. Uh, So that's the movie with Emma Thompson uh, and Mindy Kaling. And uh, and the story is that uh, Emma Thompson is playing a talk show host, a veteran talk show host, has been doing her show for 20, 25, maybe 30 years, and uh, perhaps has grown a little stale in that job and certainly has been passed by by social media and what we'll call uh, modern humor. But she's hanging on, uh, and then the question is how she can reconnect with uh, her audience and maybe even broaden her audience so that she can... Uh, reignite her popularity and uh the person who helps her and fits and starts is mindy kelly as her one of her new writers right right uh but i thought uh i thought it was extremely good i for some reason i went to the movie with the impression that it hadn't gotten very good reviews but when i looked at rotten tomatoes today i saw that uh, the ratings were 75 to 80 which is pretty good to me so i think it's a lot of people good. like it's it. not super good yeah but what do you think of the movie um, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. It, you know, it addresses a lot of uh, different ideas yeah. of uh, getting older, um, you know, when to give up your job, when to fight for it, right. um, and uh, confronting the realities of modern life. Uh, to be honest, the Emma Thompson character is not passed by by social media. She refuses to engage at 
all. Right. Um, so and and also she's oblivious to the idea that she's no longer relevant or all that popular. Uh, she's just uh, zooming along. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you, you know, you kind of admire that to some degree. She's not going to be carried away by trends. She's not going to change who she is in order to become popular with a different demographic. She is who she is. And she has uh, a great deal of belief in that's the way she ought to be. She feels she's doing things the right way. She thinks she's got, she's putting forward sophisticated humor as opposed to superficial kind of childish humor, which she associates with a lot of folks uh, uh, of the demographic that she's supposed to appeal to. So she's in a little bit of a quandary. How does she maintain her standards on the one hand, even as she seeks to broaden her audience? Well, I mean, uh, and, but she's got to do that. Right. I mean, she only exists if she has an audience. That's, that's the quandary, there, There's right? no, you know, it's not like she's saving the world and uh, the audience be damned. The audience is the world she's trying to well, connect with. She's just got to find a different way to connect. Right. And Mindy, who comes out of nowhere, who yes. comes out of a chemical plant right. uh, in uh, Pennsylvania, is going to be the person to show her that. Because Mindy has the experience of making humorous announcements at the chemical plant. They even show her. That's her, that's her background in comedy. And so, you know, it addresses uh, discrimination against women, against, uh, you know, other peoples, other races, etc., in the you know, television workplace. Right. And uh, so, you know, it. I thought it was good. I thought it was uh, fun and funny. The ending is a little bit of a disappointment. Yeah, it's a little bit of a disappointment. It's a little too packed. But, you know, I looked at the review that was in the Times, and uh, it's by A.O. Scott. It is largely incomprehensible. Um, but he does make an observation at the end, if you stay with it, uh, which I think rang true for me, which is one of the things that saves the movie and, and makes it worth seeing, is that Emma Thompson's character is interesting. She's an interesting person. Emma Thompson makes her interesting. And he says it's a great performance by Emma Thompson. I think that's true. Yes, Emma Thompson was terrific. Yeah. Absolutely terrific. But here's my beef with it. What? At the end, okay, spoiler alert. Yeah. Okay, so she survives. She survives by, you know, in to some extent, yeah. uh, you know, embracing the current uh, ways of doing things right. a little bit. And also, you know, kind of lending herself. She's been kind of this uh, imperious boss, right. uh, isolating herself. And so she actually begins to learn the names of her writers, right. et cetera, and, but begins also to have a little more faith in her own material, in uh, her ideas, and the idea that the audience literally wants to, truly wants to connect with her, right. um, so not just your, her caricature. What, what's your beef? You said you started out with, what, here's my beef. At the end, all right, through, she plays this fabulous character yeah. who looks terrific. Right. Great hairdos, um, great outfits, you know, not, uh, you know, not outlandish, but uh, to some extent kind of quirky, adorable, fantastic clothes. She doesn't look childish. She doesn't look like an older woman, you know, trying to uh, play a young femme fatale. It's all perfect. But once they change her into the new Catherine, whatever her name is. Um, and she's serious and thoughtful and, uh, you know, truthful. Right. She stops dyeing her hair. 
She is not wearing uh, false eyelashes oh, really? anymore. Her clothing becomes on the verge of being dowdy. Really? I didn't yes. notice that. There is a huge change. Oh. As if to say, um, you know, striking fashionable women cannot be smart right. and interesting. Well, I didn't catch that. And that kind of pisses me off. I didn't catch um, that at all. So uh, I'm sure you're right. Uh, you know, yeah. I just thought that was yeah, the, uh, the whole, that's yeah. another cliche. Yeah. We like to fall for it, like oh, you know, sure, I could be beautiful too, but I'm too busy being smart. Yeah. Um, no, 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 no. Yeah, uh, no. The ending was a real compromise in a lot of ways, but uh, just the last few minutes of the movie. Uh, so we recommend so you, that. Yeah, you can go. To, well, I wouldn't go to it. You don't have to go to it. Well, but you can definitely I, but I would when it comes no, but I it's I think it's a perfectly good movie to see on the small screen. Oh sure, too. When it that's, comes around that's true to that, too. yeah, yeah, okay. So there's not much know. else to see out there. I think it's, it's an easy recommendation. Maybe. Yeah, but it, it's barely showing at this point. I think yeah. it's been okay. out for a while. All right, so uh, you had oh, ice cream. Yes, ice cream. Okay, it's July fourth. July fourth. So to cool off. You might want to eat some ice cream. So the New York Times, of course, had an ice ice cream article this week called America Scoop by Frosty Scoop. So this interested me because, of course, as I've said many times on this podcast, I do make ice cream. We haven't bought commercial ice cream except in true emergencies for a long time. And uh, so um, we eat homemade ice cream. And, uh, you know, so I'm naturally pretty interested in ice cream. What's great about this is they have examples of fantastic shops, fascinating flavors all over the country. Um, so this is a little bit too cool for school for me, yeah, but uh, I mean, what they have. you know, I'll never get to most of these places and I, I won't get any place where they have ice cream this interesting. And it's not like I'm really dying to have the strangest ice cream ever. Um, but uh, some of these sound uh, fabulous. Persian ice cream in L.A. Well, L.A., of course, you know, why wouldn't L.A. have Persian ice cream in a place called Saffron and Rose? Uh, so you want to go there and get... Uh, ice cream um, with rose water syrup and so forth. Or maybe you want coconut ice cream uh, at Crank and Boom uh, in um, Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, a young woman who grew up in her family's uh, Thai restaurant started making ice cream. Um, in uh, Texas, um, Richardson, Texas, uh, there is... Uh, ice cream from Syria at Big Dash. And uh, this comes from that kind of ice cream that's kind of chewy, and they call it Booza, B-O-O-Z-A. There's also, it's similar to the Turkish ice cream that we keep reading about, uh, Don Derma. It has mastic in it. Mastic is gum. like gum. Yeah. yeah. And uh, makes ice cream kind of chewy. So my ice cream is usually not chewy, so oh. I'm, I'm interested in that concept. And then, you know, um, Peruvian ice cream in East Stroudsburg, in the Poconos, mm -hmm. in PA, at Llama Ice Cream. So it was a fun article to read about all these different super crazy flavors, including a Mexican flavor uh, called the Twinkie, uh, which has pieces of a Twinkie kind of dessert uh, popular in Mexico, and a wonderful discussion of... Cuban flavors in Miami 
and uh, the owner of um, this restaurant, uh, her name is uh, Susie Batche, says she's had older, elderly Cuban men in tears yeah. tasting her ice cream. But what's the, what, is it a, the name of the flavor or not? Um, the name of the flavor is wonderful. It's Abuela Maria. Oh, okay. So it has pieces of broken up Maria cookies in it, and uh, this is at Azucar. Yeah, all right. So this is means yeah. sugar, right? All right. So let's in Miami. In terms of your ice cream, just so we can get a little more concrete here in terms of flavors. I mean, what we were talking before. It's hard for me to sort of catalog all the ice creams you've made, but you make ice cream out of kefir and out of buttermilk. Those are two different bases. So you might have a chocolate ice cream or a, a vanilla ice cream out of kefir or out of buttermilk. You might add something like stracciatella. You might get a little which would be melted chocolate, exactly, which hardens in it. You have brandy, but I just make that uh-uh. because yeah. kefir and buttermilk are supposed to be good for you, right? Yes. So it's ice cream that will cure everything, right? So there's prune ice cream, brandy soaked prune with sliced pecans, there's spiced pecans, spiced pecans. There's gin soaked raisin ice cream. Yeah, the gin soaked raisin ice cream that's for your um, arthritis. Yeah, well, no, I don't have arthritis. But gin it's, soaked it's, golden raisins. It's important. It has to be golden raisins. Otherwise, they're too there's hard. There's some magical it's, thing right. that happens. Apparently, you can get the same effect by having a gin and tonic. Right. I, but, think, I you bet know. you can. All right. Uh, peanut butter chocolate. Tin roof sundae. This is normal ice cream. Rum raisin. Balasses ginger snap. Here we go. Green tea. You make green tea ice cream, which is unexpected. Yes, I, I call unexpected. it matcha ice cream, of course. Miso ice cream. Which is your favorite, isn't it? Yes, I do like miso ice cream. There's blueberry chocolate, which was just recent. And, of course, I do like your turmeric ice cream. Okay. But the blueberry ice cream, the blueberry chocolate ice cream was weird. Yes, because, but not the turmeric. Because it was purple. Yeah. But because I had put chocolate in it, yeah. it tasted like chocolate. It was blue ice cream. It, there was a real disconnect. It was blue chocolate ice cream. Uh, yeah. But the turmeric, turmeric looks exactly like turmeric. There's no confusion there. And again, so, cures everything. Yeah. All right. So that's enough uh, ice cream variety for me. I don't think I have to go any place to uh, have Persian ice cream. Uh, Lee Iacocca died this week. So Lee Iacocca was a big deal. That uh, those of us of a certain age remember was a huge figure in business, was a huge figure in Washington. It was rumored to that he might run for president. He ran Chrysler at a time that Chrysler was about to go under, at a time that the country didn't like to have big companies like Chrysler go under. So he saved Chrysler, right? Uh, the government saved Chrysler. There was a loan but he, guarantee. Didn't he talked the government into that. He or did. Something? He talked them into. He seemed a, like a big hero. He, at the time. he did. That's a little part of his story, but I think it's true. 1979 was a loan guarantee, but he's more impressive. Then the loan that he worked out from the government was three years later, Chrysler paid it back. So it worked out extremely well. For everyone. But here's how they did it. Here's how they did it. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to over... The rest of the story. The rest of the story. I'm oversimplifying. But here, this is a big part of it, and this is part of our personal experience. What, uh, what he realized just about that time was that uh, the American consumer wanted, continued to want big station wagons. But if you recall the fuel crisis of the 1970s, there were pretty stringent fuel economy regulations imposed on cars that made it impossible to make and to sell those station wagons. So what he did was they came up with the minivan. And here's the trick. They persuaded the government the minivan should be regulated as a light truck. Oh, so it had less stringent... There are uh, very few regulations on light trucks in terms of emission standards and in terms of fuel economy regulations. And this was a big debate 
because the minivan looked like a utility van. And when they came up with the minivan, uh, they said, look, we have some utility vans in the same model, but only 3% of their sales really were those utility vans. And there was a, and anyway, he won the argument. Mm-hmm. They called it a light truck like utility van and they sold like crazy. We yes. bought a minivan and well, more than one minivan. My father ran right out. My, my father was delighted. It was a great car. He, and uh, he said, he pointed out immediately, it has a wheelbase of a much smaller car. Right. So it's much more manageable. Tamsin, you need one. Right. And uh, he sold me his. <laughs> right. So it was, that was a huge thing in bringing the company back, but it yeah. all had to do with government regulation. So that had as much to do with their success as getting the uh, the loan guarantee, was mm-hmm. getting that regulation mm-hmm. of the minivans. And they were the huge leader in minivans. And they took over. So... um it's funny, the light truck thing has always continued. It's still that way, sort of. Light trucks are regulated differently, and light truck sales are huge. Mm-hmm. So there, it turns out there is a new company that's... Oh, wait a minute. Let me just say one more Iacocca thing. Yeah, sure. When I think of him, I think, uh, wasn't he the head of uh, the helping to raise money to renovate uh, Ellis, Ellis Island? Island? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. And uh, when... Uh, we actually went to a big opening right, there we did. when yeah. it first opened, mm-hmm. which was spectacular. Mm-hmm. What a fascinating place. What a um, great effort. And that's all what I always think of. Well, he made a speech. Him. He said, look, if it wasn't uh, for if my par- parents, if my forebears weren't accepted at Ellis Island, I wouldn't have come over. I wouldn't have been here. I couldn't have saved those jobs. And it's true of a lot of other immigrants and immigrant families. Yeah. So he was a big supporter of and Ellis of course, Island. of uh, course, on both sides of our families, uh, People, many people came through yeah. Ellis Island. So that was very much fun well, to see. Well, my grandparents, yeah. Absolutely. So in any event, uh, but there's a similar drama being played out now. There's a, there's a fellow whose name is R.J. Scringe, and he has a company called Rivian. And Rivian is an electric car manufacturer. Now, I say electric car manufacturer as if these things, you know, emerge every few weeks, but they don't. It is very hard almost impossible to create a new car company. Tesla being the exception that proves the rule, and Tesla may not succeed. There right. are very every, few every new few car years, companies. there's another movie about uh, back in the day, somebody trying to start. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it, it, this, this doesn't work. So, um, and yet this guy, straight out of MAIT, his doctorate program, came out with the idea he is determined to start an electric car company, spends the first few years coming up with a, a prototype, which is a sports car. And uh, then after he develops the sports car, after two years, he ditches the plan because, quote, in my heart and soul, I knew I wasn't answering the fundamental question of why the world needs this company to be successful. And he says, we're doing something else, which is insane. And he pivots to make, guess what? Electric light trucks. That's what he's going to do. Electric light trucks. But... Are they real trucks in terms of, uh, you know, the kind of things that does the dirty work that you see on television? No, they're not. They are lifestyle products, capable but meant for recreational use. And they start at $70,000 and reasonably equipped are going to be $90,000. So they're going to be like the pickup trucks, like the guys who zoom by us uh, when we're out for our bike rides? Right, the guys who would never put dirt in a truck. Uh, they're going to be like that kind of thing. Recreational life vehicles. You know, I mean, it's not like there haven't been uh, electric trucks before. Yeah. Actually, years ago, I was uh, at the Museum of the City of New York, and they had some kind of display. Yeah. And there was some kind of little delivery 
trucks shown um, that were battery operated in the early part of the 20th century. And it turns out that uh, that, you know, that goes back to a company called Walker Electric. Mm -hmm. And they produced delivery trucks Uh from like 1907 to like the 1940s. And those replaced the old horse and buggy guys. Oh, really? And they were vastly preferable because they didn't poop all over your streets. Yes. And they were, you know, uh, much nicer to have around. So bakeries had them. Uh, dairy, dairy guys had them, milk guys, and various kinds of businesses. They had a, like a 50 mile range, uh-huh. and they um, could, uh, I don't know, they had like three and a half uh, horsepower. Right. So, um, well, these are real. So that's funny. These are real trucks. So they're going to have a range of a few hundred miles. Uh, and uh, the, uh, let's see, Amazon has invested $700 million in his company, oh, it's 400 mile range. Uh, Ford itself has has invested five hundred million dollars in his in his company, mm-hmm. and we'll see. But here's so does that even work? Does the idea? It, it's sort of the Iacocca story backwards if you think about it, right? So he is now investing in Iacocca succeeds because he convinces people that, that they need a truck, that they need a truck or a minivan. Right. But the key is it's not going to be regulated. Right. He doesn't have to worry about emissions. This guy is in the same category. But the key about his whole product is it's energy efficient, it's eco-useful, it has no emissions. It's the reverse of what Coke is doing. Right. The only way this succeeds, in my mind, yeah. is if he is expecting, and Amazon's expecting, and Ford's expecting, that those regulations on light, light trucks are going to change. Right. And they're going to start uh, enforcing emission standards on them, and they're going to have the only they're truck. they're going to be ready. And they're going to be at the truck. And they're going to have the... That's my, yeah. that's my prediction. All right. There you go. Invest. Rivian. 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 Okay. Go ahead. All right. Uh, Just a a note of caution there. Yeah. Um, I think it is a great idea, but uh, when you encourage people that way, (laughs) very often you're not exactly correct. Yes. You're talking about horse racing. That's very different. All right. Just putting that out there. Yeah. All right. Although, you know, of course, I believe in you. Yes. Um, So... Um, article about celery. Yeah. Now, I believe in celery. Yeah. I really do believe in celery. And, um, you know, celery has massive benefits, uh, allegedly. I mean, it's good for everything. It's good for your digestion. Yeah, you make it's celery good. soup. It's anti-inflammation. Mm-hmm. And uh, whenever we have the celery soup, uh, we, we feel tremendously better. But there's no celery ice cream, I noticed. I mean, there could be celery ice cream, but, you know... What the heck, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm not sure. Celery yeah. soup is close uh, enough. Yeah, but let's stick to the gin-soaked raisin ice cream, will you please? Yeah. Um, that's already curing everything. But anyway, so now everybody feels this way, uh, including especially Anthony William, uh, a sort of uh, you know health food guru, who um, recommended in a book. Uh, called the medical medium celery juice, the most powerful medicine of our time, healing millions worldwide. And so now there's a shortage of celery. Really? Everybody wants it in their juice, their smoothie, whatever. Um, this has compounded with, um, you know, some, you know, there was a bad, uh, a couple of bad crops, uh, some soil. But you warned yeah. disease, so there's a little bit of shortage and a huge demand. A um, natural food store 
and Juice Bar in Brooklyn Heights, Perilandra, sold about 700 pounds of celery in May uh, 2018, 1,200 pounds of it um, in May 2019. Do you have trouble buying celery? Do I? You know what? Actually, recently I have noticed oh, really? that uh, I, I was, uh, you know, I was about to buy some celery. There wasn't much of a selection. There wasn't much there. And it seemed like a shockingly high price. I think of celery as not costing much at all. Yeah. And oh. it was higher than I thought. Now they said this happens. Five years ago, it was organic almonds. Uh, seven years ago, it was kale. All right. Okay. Five years ago, a couple of years ago, it was cilantro. Um, so uh, the trick is what you really need to figure out is what will um, be all the rage next. And our um, food guru, Anthony William, is kind of betting on papaya, yeah. which he says heals acne, eczema, and psoriasis. Isn't papaya highly caloric? Yes, is the answer. I mean, a lot of fruits are. It's not. It's not just a matter of highly caloric. It's high glycemic. Oh, you know, they have a lot of sugar, and it's sugar that you know metabolizes. But right. if you have the fiber, etc., yeah. uh, you know, you're okay. But okay, so th- there we have it: electric trucks and, and papaya. papaya yeah, all right. right, I know where I'm going. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, but here's what I would really invest in. This is actually what I would really invest in, uh, and it is nonprofit. Nonprofit groups bring books to where children get bored. And it's a fun uh, little article in the New York Times this week about books for children in a variety of places, including barbershops. Okay, now. Barbershops have always been an important place to read, mm-hmm. okay? But it is my understanding that uh, it's a place uh, where it's... Um, maybe you want to fill in... There are men's like, magazines. Once men's, magazines okay, men's magazines. Where men are honing their reading skills right, reading on the, the articles. Isn't it always the articles? The articles, the kind of articles that, that a man okay. can appreciate while he's getting his haircut. That's right. right. Um, but here, they um, they probably still have those in the barbershops, but they also have a different kind of picture book, mm. and that would be picture books for young children. I mean, there are literally organizations that are um, this uh, one gentleman... Uh, what's his name? Dante Williams, uh, has, uh, um, is being, uh, well, Dante Williams supplies his barbershop with books from Barbershop Books, which was founded by Alvin Irby in, uh, I think Harlem, uh, in 2014. Uh, he was, uh, noticing that kids were getting antsy, waiting for their turn, and wished he had a book to hand it to the kids. So in various places, the books have been become have become an important part of that barbershop community. We hear so much about kids uh, be entertained by the books, and they are engaged, and they are encouraged to read aloud to the barber. Right, that's the key. They have okay. the big stacks of books there that people donate, but they, what they do is they have the kids read while they're getting their hair cut, and they even say that sometimes the barber's understand that they should say they don't they don't hear very well can you read a little louder and the kids really do reject 
And that was encouraged by a barber, uh, Jonathan Esqueda, who noticed that uh, on the team, the, yeah. I think it was a basketball team, he was helping to coach. Kids uh, very often had a difficult time communicating. Yeah. And again, this was a way of engaging, communicating, giving kids confidence to speak louder and confidence in their reading. There's also a um, group called Libraries Without Borders uh, that is part of the Laundry Literacy Coalition. And these people are, you know, you can imagine kids in uh, laundromats, right? Yeah. What do they do all the time while they're with their... Uh, parents waiting for the laundry to get done. They run around and raise heck. So, uh, you know, in some of these places now books are available to keep them occupied and perhaps be a good thing. So I was quite charmed by that. hope there will be more than... Well, they had a cute story on. at the end of it, but they said that, you know, there's one little kid was kind of hesitant and then he uh, got into this and uh, he ended up practicing on a book all week, waiting for his next haircut. He was very proud that he was going to read it aloud to the barber, which right. he did. Right. And now he's doing very well in school. Yeah, so very cute a, article. Yeah. Right. Fun idea. Uh, so there's an article about John Sterling, uh, who's the play-by-play uh, -play announcer on the uh, radio for the Yankees. Uh, now, John Sterling, um, I'm a Met fan, I'm not a Yankee fan, um, and uh, so I don't listen to John Sterling too much. And John Sterling uh, has his detractors and his supporters. Uh, he's, uh, he doesn't catch everything that goes on uh, on the field, but there's a reason for it. Uh, John Sterling's 81 years old, and he's doing the games. He doesn't even see that well. So there's always a little bit of a joke. Someone said, did you hear the Yankee game last night? He said, there's a long fly ball. It's going, going, and the shortstop catches it. Because that, that kind of thing happens all the time. So there's sort of a, a little bit of an amusing uh, aspect of John Sterling. But the fact of the matter is, to give John Sterling his due, he uh, has been doing the games for 30 years, since 1989, and it turns out he hasn't missed a game. So he has done 5,060 Yankee games in a row, and people are noting it now because, in fact, now he is taking a break at the age of 81. He's taking a week off. Um after uh, 5,000 games in a row in 30 years because he's, uh, his doctors advise that he's slowing down, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, uh, it's kind of an amazing accomplishment to do it for 30 years in a row. And he talks about before that he, had, uh, he was working in Atlanta. He was doing basketball games and baseball games. So he was doing work this way all the time. He did that for five years in a row and never mixed a day, et cetera. He is, uh, he's got a great voice. People always say this about Sterling. He has a deep baritone voice. And uh, you wouldn't know he's 81 years old. But, uh, and he's, uh, he's kind of insufferable. If you're not a Yankee fan, it's a lot to listen to. <laughs> but, but, but that but, is some kind of attendance record. Yeah, I mean, and 30 uh, years had not missing a game. wouldn't love to have an employee like that? Well, the thing is, and, and they do so much traveling. I mean, yeah. he's 81 years old, and he's going to a different city uh, three times a week. And it, it's kind of crazy that he's able to do that. But uh, he is slowing down, and, uh, you know, he's uh, Susan Waldman, uh, the woman who works with him. They're in the booth. There aren't, as you might expect, too many women doing uh, baseball games, but she's the other play-by-play -play person. Uh, she's only 72, so uh, she is the younger person in the team. You and told me she was a, call a caller. No, no, no. She wasn't a caller. She, she did call in shows. Oh, she did call in shows. On okay. WFAN. And before that, I, I thought you meant that she uh, just called up one no. day and say, "How about me?" There, actually, there are a couple of people like that who work at FN. She's not one of them. Okay. Her background was she was, as I think I mentioned, on Broadway, 
as sort of a supporting type actor for years. So she was a little bit of a theater background going way back. But in any event, she's uh, relatively knowledgeable, and uh, she certainly is devoted to John, and they're a unique type of team. I will say this, that uh, it's not hard to get a Yankee fan to say, look, I, you know, the, Met, the Yankees are so much better than the Mets. The only thing that the Mets have that's better than the Yankees is their broadcasting team. I've heard that many times. But in any event, give Sterling his due. He's entitled to a week off. I know you were upset uh, that you missed the Mets broadcast. Well, it was, it was the other night. We were watching the local, uh, you know, kind of well, we were rivalry, at, the uh, Mets and the Phillies. Yeah, I should explain. We were watching a, a feed from Philadelphia, and when we get a game here in the Philadelphia area, uh, I'm blacked out of the New York broadcast, which means that I can't see the great Met announcers, which in this case were uh, not only uh, Ron Dorling and Keith Hernandez. But Jerry Seinfeld, because it was Jerry Seinfeld night. It was Jerry Seinfeld night, and they were giving out Jerry Seinfeld Bobble. bobblehead right. dolls. So instead of listening to them, which was looked pretty funny, uh, I'm listening to John Krupp for the Phillies, and they're actually showing the Mets booth, and these guys are laughing hysterically with Seinfeld. And, and we I, didn't get to hear We didn't get to hear a word of it. it. Yeah. Uh, so that was rough. Yeah, that was rough. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, another way to keep cool is to go to a museum. Uh, and uh, at the Frick, there's an interesting exhibition in New York, the Frick Collection, um, called Tiepolo in Milan, the Lost Frescoes of Palazzo Arquinto. And uh, these are um, these are a group of what we might call preliminary sketches or modello hmm. um, that uh, were done in order to in preparation for doing the actual frescoes painting on the ceilings uh, of this palazzo um, back in uh, the 1730s in Milan. Now, the original frescoes, which had, you know, various interesting stories, uh, like the love between um, uh, Perseus and Andromeda, etc., and a um, an interesting sort of... Uh, um, what you might call um, allegorical uh, painting of triumph of arts and sciences. That sounds like a schnorrer, really. Um, but um, a schnorrer, not a schnorrer. What's a schnorrer? Schnorrer is a person who's not a good person. It's Yiddish. Okay. Well, yeah. this is you know, <laughs> this is maybe a very good thing, but a little boring. Right. But anyway, the the point is that these frescoes were in a building that was bombed by Allied bombers hmm. in. Milan, destroyed. But we have these um, original modelli, uh, original sketches, uh, so, you know, purchased by Mr. Frick, actually. Um, And so we can see what they perhaps looked like and imagined them. But, you know, it brings, you know, it brings back to um, the, um, you know, sort of the forefront, this idea of, uh, you know, artistic heritage being destroyed and which is happening in many countries now, especially in the Middle East as a result of these conflicts. And uh, really Milan was uh, pretty well destroyed. And the notable exception was of course, the last supper right, by Leonardo. And uh, that was, that managed to survive. But Milan is not the most beautiful city because of how, Heavily. No, it's an industrial Allies, city now. I mean, uh, it's, yeah, the Allies it's not an artistic and destroyed city. Yeah. much of its uh, architectural history. But anyway, this would be fun, um, 
things to see at the Frick. Okay, and moving right along. Yes, this is this is this, this is, is your a favorite. little bit of a visual. Okay, my apologies. Only a little bit, all right? Um, but I'm you know kind of thumbing through the New York Times uh, today, and I notice a big ad for an auction house. Okay. Uh, Is it an auction house or is it just a uh, gallery? Anyway, it's uh, M.S. Rao Antiques. And they very often have a large, uh, colorful ad of a painting or a sculpture, some fine, fabulous thing um, in the first section of the Times that they are offering for sale. And the title of this, and you, you look at it, you can't figure out what it is. But it says, Seat of Love, the Siege d'Amour, designed for the king, incredible rarity, tantalizing history. Prominent Parisian cabinet maker Louis Soubrier designed the Siege d'Amour, or Seat of Love, for Edward VII. Prince of Wales, later King of England, in about 1890. A notorious playboy, Edward had an example of this extraordinary chair delivered to his favorite bordello in Paris for his personal use. And it uh, facilitated a variety of interesting um Shall we say? I'm not helping you out. You're, you're on your own. <laughs> um, uh, uses. Uh, he was including being able to amuse himself with two ladies simultaneously. So, I mean, it's uh, it's quite the elegant late 19th century um, rarity. Uh, maybe someone wants to uh, invest. Yeah. I have to say... It looks a little bit like an upright sled or something like that. You know, I went on the website, MS Rao Antiques. Great. Not very helpful. I thought maybe they'd have some diagrams or something. I'm sure if you... Um, There are websites uh, that do have diagrams. Can you imagine uh, cataloging that? um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, quite risque. I think L.L. Beans probably will have something Very historical. Apparently, there were at least... There are three known today. Yeah. The original that the king had, and then there's one in the Museum of Sex yeah. in Prague. Where it belongs. We missed that museum. We did. We, we saw some museums We'll, we'll in go Prague. to Prague again some other time. That's, uh, yeah, that's as close as we're getting to that chair. Although there's a Museum of Sex in New York, who knows? Maybe that will come to pass. Maybe they should buy this so they could, you know, uh, a, <laughs> measure up to the me- Museum of Sex in Prague. Measure up. Uh, okay, so the final story is this. This is to take a little bit of a turn. Um, the turn- I mean, sex was all over this week, right? Yeah. There, there was that guy who's selling sex toys to uh, at Walmart. At Walmart, yeah. And he wants to be the Kleenex of sex toys. Yeah, that's a poor image, but yeah. Uh, so uh, this has nothing to do with sex. Sorry. Um, turns out that 80 years ago, on July 4th, um, what we had was Lou Gehrig's farewell speech. Uh, so I never know when I'm talking about an older baseball player or a legend if everyone knows or nobody knows, I mean, this is the this is the problem with, with having. Uh, I think what do we more think? people know about Lou Gehrig, yeah, than a lot of your other 
famous guys. Okay. Okay. A, lot of, a lot of other people that you think are household names are not. and are not. Mm. And Lou Gehrig is. Mm. Unfortunately, sadly, uh, to some extent, because of Lou Gehrig disease. Well, okay. So, we don't call it that anymore. But, no, it's uh, ALS. But, uh, yes. And when I imagine Lou Gehrig, I always think of... Uh, the movie. The movie. The Pride of the Yankees. So let me, let me starring, explain. Starring Gary Cooper. So, yeah, so he, I really envision Gary Cooper. All right. So um, let, let, that, that's good. That's, that's, that's the, that actually, to my mind, is the perfectly fine frame of reference. But just one line. Lou Gehrig was a great baseball player. He was uh, second only to Ruth as a hitter. Uh, he also established the, uh, the record for most games played in a row that was later broken by Cal Ripken. But he was considered an indomitable, totally physically uh, imposing player. He, he was uh, he was called uh, the Iron something. Or I can't even remember anymore. But uh, he was an Iron Man, and uh, he uh, was a totally uh, superstar. Uh, and then he, as you mentioned, contracted uh, ALS, which is a disease that was little known toward the end well, of his career. We don't know if he contracted it. He was diagnosed with it. Yeah, I don't know what the difference is. You'll tell me later. But uh, the fact of the matter is that, um, so what happened was he went from this incredibly imposing figure that represented the height of uh, physical accomplishment in the United States at the time of baseball was at its zenith to uh, someone who was losing his physical abilities very quickly. And before you know it, he could barely stand. Um, and they hastily organized uh, a farewell day for Lou Gehrig at Yankee Stadium um, that was depicted as you mentioned uh, very famously in the movie called The Pride of the Yankees in which Gary Cooper played Lou Gehrig and as they and, and it's a so Lou Gehrig is remembered through that movie and 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 sometimes you bridle of that you say gee you know this is kind of cheap it's Hollywood it's not real life but that movie became so closely identified with Lou Gehrig because Gary Cooper and the Times describes this well it's not because Gary Cooper looked like Gehrig which he did it's not because he was athletic like Gehrig which he was not but it was the Times says because he Cooper knew so well how to play men of quiet dignity. And that's exactly right. And that's why that movie really resonated. It resonated so much that that movie was made in 1942 that at, as recently as a few years ago, in old-timers games at Yankee Stadium, that's a big day at Yankee Stadium because they have a lot of old-timers on a big names. One of the last people who would appear would be Teresa Wright, who would come into the golf cart. She's the actress who played Gary Cooper, Lou Gehrig's wife, in the movie. She was received in Yankee Stadium as if she were Mrs. Lou Gehrig. She might as well have <laughs> been the same thing. It was that crazy. Uh -huh. And the movie centers around the great speech that Lou Gehrig gave uh, at the ceremony. And the Times writes a very nice article explaining the ceremony. Um, and uh, it's really something. Um I won't go into great detail, but, you know, the mayor was there, Fielberg LaGuardia, a fellow named uh, Sid Mercer, who's the announcer. Apparently, um, the announcer uh, we were talking about a moment ago didn't go back quite that far. So uh, he was doing the game, and he, he was doing the—he's the, emceeing this ceremony. And, uh, of course, Gehrig's there, and he's very frail. And he actually—Gehrig had some notes with him. He started not to take them with him. Uh, and Sid Mercer actually says to the crowd, um, uh, I shall not ask Garrick to, speech, I, Garrick to speak. I do not believe that I should. Because Garrick is weeping. Mm -hmm. And the crowd is chanting Garrick's name. And Garrick comes up to the microphone reluctantly and says, and here's the interesting thing. They only have two lines from the speech. 
They don't know exactly what he said, but the lines they have are this. He says, for the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. That's the speech. And um, that's the speech Gary Cooper gives in the movie. That's what makes the movie such a memorable classic movie. And they don't have anything else from the speech, except apparently the Times reported that at the end of the game, at the end of the ceremony, Gehrig's in the locker room with the friendly reporters, with his teammates, and he actually said to them, did my speech sound silly? They said it was okay. <laughs> all right. So uh, that's it. That's all we have this week. And um, we'll see you uh, next week. Yeah, keep cool. Keep cool. This, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. So Tamsin and Dan read the paper. See you around. Yep.